Well, we've come to the main message portion of our service now, so I hope you have your Bibles available to you, whether it's a book or whether it's on your uh, cell phone or other device. Let's get them ready. We'll start with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, in our message today, we know that you're going to remind us of the hope that we have for the future, and it makes whatever we're going through in this life worthwhile. Thank you for being our God, and thank you for giving us such wonderful promises. We count on them, and we know that they're going to see us through for the rest of our lives in the future. So uh, through the Holy Spirit, help us to understand, not just to have mental understanding, but heart understanding. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to open our Bibles today to Thessalonians in the New Testament, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Because uh, as Paul was writing the church in Thessalonica, he wanted to remind them of the hope that we have in our lives as Christians. Talks about the future. And uh, he gives one of the most beautiful pictures and scenarios of Jesus Christ's second coming. And I'd like to begin by reading this. We're actually going to spend most of our time in 2nd Thessalonians, but to get a little bit of background, let's read in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13. He says, Brothers and sisters, for that matter, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. Now, what he's referring to here is the Thessalonians were troubled that the return of Jesus Christ had not come quickly enough, and some of their friends and relatives had died before it had taken place. So they were concerned about these friends and relatives who had, quote-unquote, fallen asleep, which is a uh, figure of speech for dying. You know, because when you look at somebody who's dead, for all intents and purposes, it kind of looks like they're sleeping, but they're dead. So he encourages them by saying, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep before Jesus Christ's return, or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. So he's encouraging them by saying, listen, your dead relatives are not going to miss out on anything. <laughs> We're all going to appreciate Jesus together. When he returns, the dead will be raised and we who are still alive, we're all going to be together to greet Jesus upon his second coming. He goes on to say in chapter 5, verse 1, Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. So we're not here to discuss when Jesus is going to return, to give you a date you know, that you can count on. And human nature always wants a date, don't they? You know, we would like to know the date of Jesus Christ's return, so we can set aside at least a couple of weeks to get our lives in order. You know, that's the way most people think. 
give us a date, you know. I want to know a date. I can mark it on my calendar and make sure I'm ready. No, we're told to always be ready because you don't know when Jesus is going to return. So instead of trying to cram at the last minute and get yourself looking better as a person, be ready now. Be ready always. That's the lesson. He says in verse 2, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, unexpectedly. We don't know when it's going to happen. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And, you know, I remember we went through several pregnancies. I say we, but my wife did. (laughs) But I was at her side, so I went through them too. And you never know when the labor pains are going to start. You kind of anticipate them, and all of a sudden one day, my wife goes, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. And then when it really gets close, other things happen, and, you know, your water breaks, and we rush her to the hospital, and we start timing pains and go through that whole thing. He says, that's what the return of Jesus is going to be like. You don't know the date. It's going to be unexpected. So make sure you're ready always. Verse 4, he says, But you brothers are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons and daughters of the light and sons and daughters of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, in other words, dead or alive, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. So Paul offers encouragement. Jesus hasn't returned yet, and your relatives and friends that have died, don't worry about them. They're good. They're okay. Because when Jesus returns, they're not going to miss out on anything. He's going to bring them back to life. We're all going to meet Jesus as he returns. It's going to be an awesome day when that happens. Okay, so now he wrote that letter to them. And after writing that letter they become troubled. Now they become troubled that the day of Jesus Christ's return may come too quickly. In fact, some people start telling the church members in Thessalonica that it already happened. Imagine people going around saying, oh, you missed out on it. Jesus already returned. It's already happened. And they're thinking, wait a minute. (laughs) What What about us? You know, How did we get left out? So Paul has to write another letter. So we turn to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. And let's read what he says. We'll we'll read in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. He says, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become uneasily or not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. So they go from one extreme to another. 
And now Paul has to encourage them once again. So obviously, some wise guy started giving his own prophecy, saying that, oh yeah, Jesus has already returned. And you think, how can that happen? Well, you know, there are some groups today, some cult groups, who feel that Jesus already returned. Was it the Seventh-day Adventists, I believe, who said that Christ was going to return at a certain day, and he didn't really appear, but they said, oh yeah, he really did return. He went into the inner chamber or something like that. So they, that's just one group in our day today who actually feels that Christ has already returned in one respect or another. So there was a false report or maybe a false letter. The church received a letter and they thought it was from Paul, but it wasn't. And it was getting the church all confused. But he goes on to say in verse 3, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day, the day of Christ's return, will not come until two things happen. He says, until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. So two things have to happen, and he doesn't get into a whole lot of detail about this rebellion. The actual word in the Greek is apostasy. Apostasy means a falling away. So a falling away or a rebellion is going to take place. And also there's going to be a man called the man of lawlessness that is going to come on the scene. Now, this is one of the most controversial sections in all the Bible. And throughout the history of the church, people have wondered, well, who is this man of lawlessness? Who will he be? Uh... And understand, I'm not here today to tell you who he will be, (laughs) because we don't know who he will be. And even as far as the rebellion or the apostasy is concerned, exactly what will it entail? When will it start? Has it already started? We don't know. But he does specify that two things have to happen before Jesus Christ returns. Now, it seems that Paul told them a lot about this and even more about this personally when he was in Thessalonica. But it only gives us the bare bones details in this letter. So he's going to keep saying, don't forget I told you about this. You know, remember what I told you about this, this, these things that have to happen before Jesus returns. But we're going to look over the evidence that we have here today and see what conclusions that we can come to. So he says that a man of lawlessness is going to be revealed, the man doomed to destruction. So as Paul introduces this individual, he doesn't call him the Antichrist. Now that's a term that you hear a lot, people who talk about the Bible and Bible prophecy. They talk about the Antichrist. In fact, John is the only one who used that term. And he's probably referring to the same individual. I'd like you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18. 1 John, that's not the Gospel of John, it's the Epistle of John, way back in the back of your Bible. 1 John 2 verse 18. Notice what he says here. Dear children, this is the last hour. So we are living in end times. Don't forget that the Bible specifies end times as having started with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. 
So as far as the Bible teaches, the end times has been going on now for 2,000 years. We're living in the end times. There's no doubt about it. He says, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, I think he's referring to the same man, the man Paul calls the man of lawlessness. So there is a person called the Antichrist. But notice he says, even now, many Antichrists have come. So when the Bible, or John specifically, talks about Antichrist, he's talking about one person, but he's also talking about anybody who is against Jesus, Antichrist. Anybody who teaches against Jesus, anybody who refuses to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, anybody who comes under that category, or anything that comes under that category, is referred to as Antichrist. Okay? And that's what uh, he means when he says there are even now many antichrists that have come in John's day as well as in our day. He says this is how we know that it is the last hour, that we're truly living in end times. So John viewed the whole period beginning with the incarnation of Jesus as the last days. And John assumed that his readers knew that a great enemy of God and an enemy of God's people will arise before Jesus' return. But prior to him, there will be many antichrists. Now, John talks a little bit about this man, the antichrist, or the man of lawlessness, and he describes characteristics of not only this man, but anyone or anything that is antichrist. In uh, 1 John 4, turn there with me, 1 John 4, in verse 2, let me give you five things that he points out here. Uh, the first characteristic of Antichrist, the man or anyone or anything that is Antichrist, they deny the incarnation. They deny the fact that God became man. And it says here in uh, 1 John 4, verse 2, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So the first characteristic of whoever or whatever is Antichrist is that they deny the incarnation. They deny the fact that Jesus is the Christ. A second thing that they do is they deny the Father, God the Father. And in chapter 2, 1 John 2, verse 22, it says this, Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. So anybody who is an atheist and says, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God the Father, I don't believe in God the Son. That's the spirit of Antichrist right there. Okay. Now there's a man coming in the future who is going to be the pro main proponent of that attitude and that belief. But what John is saying, you know, there's a lot of Antichrist sentiment in the world today. There's a lot of people who are Antichrist, who don't believe in the Father, who don't think that Jesus is the Son of God. That's all Antichrist. So the third thing, they do not have the Father. In other words, they're not in a relationship 
They don't belong to God the Father like we do. And in uh, 1 John 2, verse 23, it says, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So because we believe in Jesus Christ and we've accepted him as our Savior, Jesus opened the door to our relationship with the Father. We've been reconciled to the Father. Anything that's antichrist has not been reconciled to the Father. So they don't have the Father in relationship, so to speak. So here are the characteristics. Number one, they deny the incarnation, that Jesus is the Christ. Number two, they deny the Father. Number three, they do not have the Father. They're not reconciled to the Father or in relationship with the Father. Number four, the fourth characteristic that describes Antichrist, they are liars and deceivers. Again, in, in chapter 2, verse two, 22 here, it says, uh, who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. So the man of lawlessness will be a chief liar. He will have a big lie that a lot of people are going to believe. And the fifth and final characteristic, as John points out here, uh, it talks about people, even some people who were once a part of the church, even some people who are antichrist, maybe spent some time with the church, but now they left. And in John's day, they left the church because they didn't have anything in common with the believers. Chapter 2, verse 19, 1 John 2, 19 says this, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So, yeah, sometimes people can even come in contact with the church, maybe for a period of time, but their heart isn't in it, and they don't really see, uh, you know, the gospel, and it's not real in their lives, and so that can even apply to some people who are part of the Antichrist movement. So those are some of the characteristics of this man that will come. Let's go back now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and read on a little bit more, verses 3 through 5. So he says two things are going to happen. There's going to be an apostasy, a rebellion, and there's also going to be a man who is going to be revealed. His identity is going to be revealed. Verse 3, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man is doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So Paul introduces the leader of the rebellion with four different titles here. First of all, he's called a man of lawlessness because he's going to be defiant of all law, especially God's law moral law, civil law, and he's going to teach that there are no moral absolutes. So when he comes, he's going to pretty much turn our society upside down. And he's going to change things a lot. He's going to cause people to look at life differently, look at the world differently, perhaps look at their country differently, to look at government differently. And there's going to be a lot of confusion at this time. It's going to be an upheaval in society. 
Now, a second thing that he mentions about this man is that he's doomed to destruction. Because he's going to go on to say that when Jesus Christ appears on the scene, and he's going to appear quickly after this man arrives, this man is going to, to die. Jesus is, go, is going to do away with him very quickly. So he's doomed to destruction. A third thing that he says about this man is that he exalts himself over everything that is called God. He exalts himself over everything that is called God. Now, what does that mean? Well, we don't know for sure. You know, we speculate to say that what he is going to be able to do and what he's going to be able to teach, you know, one of the things is all concepts you've ever had of God, forget about them because they're not true. He's going to convince people, many people, that God does not exist, that he himself is God. So he's going to have a lot of power. It's going to talk about how he's going to be able to perform some miracles and things like that. And it's going to sway the minds of many people. You know, the three major religions of the world, as, as we see them, Christianity, Judaism, and even Islam, they all have the same basic roots. You know, they all look to the Old Testament as a basis for their belief. We as Christians know that you know, Jesus is found all through the Old Testament. The Jews, of course, hold the Old Testament as their scripture. And the Muslims, you know, they are very aware of the Old Testament, and they teach a lot about the Old Testament. They honor Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as their patriarchs as well to their religion. Now, if someone comes along and tries to prove or somehow show that all of that is fairy tale, it's mythology, it's not really real. In a sense, what he is doing is he is exalting himself over everything that is called God, the foundations for most religions on earth, and he's going to draw attention to himself, taking it away from God. Notice what it says here in verse 4, he'll oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple. Now that's kind of vague. What does he mean? If we're talking about a future person, now of course the temple has not existed since 70 AD. The temple in Jerusalem, when the Romans marched in and destroyed it and burned the whole city down. So how can this man sit in a temple that doesn't exist? And that's why some Bible scholars think, well, wait a minute, did this already take place? Maybe before the temple was destroyed. Are we looking at a historical figure here? Maybe one of the Roman generals or maybe one of the Roman Caesars. Because there were some men when Jerusalem was destroyed so many times who came in and vandalized the temple and desecrated the temple. Is it referring to one of those? Well, I guess that's possible. But I think most people look at this as it's still a future event. Some think that, well, maybe another temple's going to be built. Some, you know, no way to the grandeur of the original temple in Jerusalem, but maybe some kind of makeshift, slapped-together building. I guess that's a possibility, too, but I don't think that that's absolutely necessary. Some say, well, maybe this temple that he's going to sit in refers to the church, that somehow he's going to put himself in charge of the church on earth. Eh, I don't see that happening. I don't know how that can happen. 
because there's really no temple or, or any building that he can sit in, how can he put himself in charge of the body of Christ, whom Jesus said, you know, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So there's a, there's a lot of confusion with regard to the understanding of this. What exactly does that mean? A uh, lot of different opinions one way or the other. And there's no definitive way to explain that. We're just going to have to wait until it actually happens. And you're going to say, oh, that's what uh, Paul meant when he said that. You know, Paul keeps saying that he discussed this with the Thessalonians when, when he visited them. Don't you remember? I told you all about this. I wish we could have sat in on one of those meetings he had with the church there to, to get a better understanding and grasp of what all these things mean and who this man of lawlessness is going to be who's going to precede the return of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 5, Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you all these things? Yeah, Paul, we would have liked to have heard that. But now he's just kind of giving them the, the bare bones description of what he had already said. So this man seeks to dethrone God and enthrone himself. He will demand to be worshipped. Now, what, what could he possibly say or do that is going to cause people to want to worship him? You know, maybe we all have our own th theories or ideas about that. You know, some of the uh, individuals on TV who kind of specialize in prophecy that you may watch from time to time all have their own ideas as to how that's going to happen. We don't know for sure. Church history is littered with wrong guesses as to who this man might be. And if you remember some of you old-timers, uh, our old church years ago, we used to always keep coming up with ideas of who this person was going to be. And then we'd see these person, people live their lives and die. And, well, scratch him off the list. It wasn't him. And everybody from uh, you know, Hitler to Mussolini to a pope to you know, a president... Uh, this, that, they've all come and gone. We've never been right. We've never been right. So I'm not going to tell you who I think this might be. I don't know. Or when he's going to arrive, we don't know. He goes on to say in verse 6, And now you know what is holding him back. Okay. This man is to be revealed, but there's something holding him back. There's something restraining him from being revealed now, how long has this been going on? Well, since Paul's day. So in Paul's day, when he was writing this letter, the restraining of this man was already taking place. So it probably wasn't a physical human being who lived during Paul's day. But how can this man of lawlessness be restrained way back 2,000 years ago? What kind of a guy is this? How can this happen? So he says, and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. So it's according to God's time. Everything operates according to God's time. And that's the best way for it to be operated because God's time is always the best time. So this man is still being withheld until the proper time arrives because once he arrives on the scene, everything starts happening. You know, he does his thing, and then Jesus Christ returns immediately thereafter. He says, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. Yeah, everything that this man is going to represent is always 
already kind of happening in the world. There's a lot of people who don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. There are a lot of people who don't have the Father. There are a lot of people who are liars and teach lies. You see, the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of this man, has been at work in the world now for a couple thousand years. But when this man arrives on the scene, he's going to be the culmination of it all. So he says, For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. Okay, so we don't know who the man of lawlessness is. Who is the one who's restraining him now and has been for 2,000 years? Well, sometimes people think maybe it's the Holy Spirit. Maybe uh, it's a Christian society. Maybe as long as there's a Christian society, a somewhat Christian society extant in the world, he can't really get in yet and have his full power. But as we see our society break down and so many Christian morals and Christian ethics are disappearing in this world, maybe it's getting closer to the time he's going to be revealed. So the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the full culmination of it isn't going to happen until whoever is restraining this man no longer restrains him and he takes over in full power. Someone or something is restraining it to the proper time. And once the restraint is removed, the lawless one will be revealed, then Jesus will return. So let's read on a little bit more. He says, uh, verse 8, Then, once the restraint is out of the way, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. So what this man is going to be, it's going to be like a fake return of Jesus Christ. Jesus is returning, but just prior to it, there's going to be one more test, if you will, to determine who are God's people and who are not. Once the restraint is removed, he comes on the scene. Reading on a little bit further. Verse 9, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. So that's one thing that's really going to impress people and get them to believe in this man, that perhaps this man is God. He is going to work under Satan's power. So this man is not Satan himself. He's working with Satan's power to perform counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. So some people are convinced by such things we should not be. We're warned that this is coming. We should be aware of it and on guard for it. This man is going to have the ability to perform miracles. It says, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. And, you know, when we look at the the, the people in the world today, whoever does not have Jesus Christ is perishing. They're dead, in other words. Spiritually dead and perishing. So, This man's miracles and wonders, counterfeit miracles and wonders, are going to have a profound effect on the people who are perishing. Those who don't have Christ. Those who don't know better. Those who haven't been warned about his coming. 
So Jesus performed miracles. This man is going to be able to perform miracles. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. So that's quite a scenario. This rebellion, whatever it's going to be, is going to take place publicly. It will be seen in a worldwide breakdown of the rule of law, the administration of justice, the practice of true religion. Both God and Satan are at work in relation to the coming of this man of lawlessness. Satan is going to empower him. God is only going to let him appear at the proper time. His coming is a mockery of the second coming of Jesus Christ. It says that Christ is coming in power and glory and splendor, whereas the man of lawlessness comes with counterfeit miracles, signs, wonders that deceive people rather than enlighten them. And it's going to be such a clever parody of the second coming of Jesus that many will be taken in by the clever deception. So Paul says, listen, (laughs) you now know better. There's a deception coming. There's going to be a man who's going to appear on the scene having great power. He's going to teach things that are going to turn the world upside down. And part of what he's going to teach is, you know, all the religions that you've believed, don't believe them. They're they're a myth. It's mythology. It's about me. It will be such a clever parody of the coming of Jesus that many will be taken in by his clever deception. The reason for their being deceived is that they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Now, we love the truth of God. We love the gospel. (laughs) We believe it. It has become a part of us. And, you know, we need to be sure that it's not just something we think is a good idea and it sounds good to me and, yeah, I'll come to church every now and then. Uh, No, it's something that has become so much a part of us, we believe with all of our might, with all of our heart, our mind, and our soul that we have devoted our lives to this Savior that we have. And, you know, I think some people are really going to be tested. Well, everybody's going to be tested, but even some Christians are going to be tested at this time. Do you really believe what you say you believe? I mean, do you really believe it? Because this man's argument is going to be so persuasive. The miracles, the, uh, the signs, the wonders are going to blow people away. And even Christians are going to be challenged So, you know, we come to church every week and we make it a point that in some way every week we remind you of the gospel. We remind you of who we are in Jesus Christ, that we have been reconciled to the Father. Uh, We have a relationship with the Father. Uh, The door has been opened to us to approach the Father boldly in his throne. And we need to be reminded of this week after week after week after week. It has to become so much a part of us. We know the gospel inside and out. We know the story of what God has done through his grace and mercy for us and really for all sinners. Because when the time comes, you'd better be standing on that strong foundation. You better love God. And that's why we talk about growing deeper and deeper in relationship with him. 
That's what we're to do as Christians in this life now. We're being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ because we're going to be put on the spot. And if you've gone through your Christian life all these years and kind of just drifted through it and sleepwalked through it, you're going to be in a tough time. And we don't want anybody here to be one of the ones who start to question their faith. We have to be grounded in the faith. We have to be deeper and deeper in relationship with Jesus Christ because it's going to be some pretty powerful uh, stuff that's going to come along. The love of the truth, uh, these people who, who don't make it, the love of the truth was offered to them, but they rejected it. And because of that, God will give them over to their own willful blindness. And a lot of people will be blinded. This is going to be a very clever thing. It's going to be offered up by the most clever being in a negative way that has ever existed, Satan the devil. So what about these people who don't make it? Well, it mentions this about them. These people delight in wickedness or make sinfulness their choice. And that's a lot of people in the world today. Secondly, they refuse to believe and love the truth. Thirdly, Satan gets in and deceives them. And then fourthly, God sends them a strong delusion, giving them over to the lie that they have chosen to believe. And finally, they are condemned. They are condemned with the second coming of Jesus. And Jesus' return is going to be right on the heels of the appearance of this man. It says here... uh, Verse 9 of chapter 2, The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. And it talks about their punishment. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction, which means everlasting ruin. In other words, they will be shut out from the presence of the Lord. And that's pretty much the definition of hell. They have chosen to be outside the presence of the Lord, whereas we have chosen to be close in the presence of the Lord. And that's where we will be for all eternity, while the others will be shut out of that presence. So it's a very sober warning. Paul ends with a a note of encouragement in in verse 13 of chapter 2. He says, but we, we who believe, we who are God's children, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. So when I think about these things, and again, we can't explain them in all detail. We don't know who this man will be. 
We don't know when he will arrive. There's something restraining him now. And when God determines that that time of restraining is over, he will appear and things will happen fast. This man is going to be so influential that he's going to pretty much overturn the whole world and all of society. He's going to try to convince people that the religions that they believed in are fairy tales and myths and that there is no God and that we've been believing a lie and that he will take his place through miracles and signs and wonders uh, where people will begin to worship him. But we know better. We've been warned just as the Thessalonians were. And when this time comes, we should become ready to meet our Savior. Because quickly on the heels of this man's appearance, Jesus will return. So his return is that close. So let's be on guard. Let's not put off to the last minute getting our lives in order and getting close to God. That should be a daily thing going on with us right now. So that when the lies are produced, we will be so grounded in the truth, we will know the gospel, we will have believed it for so many years, we will have no doubts. We will know the liar when we see him, we will know the false uh, miracles that he will perform, and we won't be confused. We will stand firm. So let's ask ourselves now, is our belief in the gospel grounded in our hearts is it just a passing fancy will it be like some of these people who go out from the church and like paul said well they were really never a part of us they spent some time with us for whatever reasons but they didn't have the wherewithal to hang in there to the end we need to have the wherewithal and by god's strength and his grace we will have the wherewithal to see it through to the very end to receive our reward when we meet our Savior face to face. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thanks for the warnings that uh, you preserved for us through the Apostle Paul. We know that before our Lord and Savior returns, a couple of things are going to happen. And uh, for whatever purposes, you didn't give us any more details. So we're going to go on faith because that's what you want us to do. We have been duly warned and we know that we need to grow closer to you on a daily basis, to be convinced of the gospel, to know that it's real, it's not just a story, it's not just a myth, but we have based our whole lives on this gospel, believing it, receiving your grace, receiving forgiveness of our sins, and we're looking forward now to the goal of our belief, the return of Jesus Christ when we receive our reward. Let nothing shake us, Father. Give us the strength. Help us to hold on to the rock who is our anchor, Jesus Christ, to focus our life on him. If it's not about Jesus, it's not about anything. He is the one who's going to see us through to the end and help us as your children to remain loyal and faithful and to do our part. We look forward to meeting you, Lord Jesus, face to face. We know that time is coming soon. Please keep us, hold us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.